0: Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my internally valid friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about internal validity, broadly and traditionally, but also as an increasingly important lens through which to view our information-saturated world and be a responsible, critical, and skeptical member of scientific communities as well as society. Along the way, we also mention gargling bleach, 5G cell towers, vaping Lysol, fecal transplants, the problem with fire trucks, Star Trek and causality, Sherlock Holmes, melon-wrapped prosciutto, Kitty Physics, The Regression Fairy, tails challenged Individuals, and Mad-Eye Moody. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: So Greg, it's been exactly two weeks since we did our research in the time of COVID,
0: excuse me I was just gargling bleach you um, gargling bleach <laughs> well I'd finished covering my body in herbal oils and I'd been doing the blow dryer up my nose and then I just wanted to finish it off with gargling bleach just gotta stay healthy man just gotta stay healthy
1: those are so ridiculous to use since you haven't also packed yourself with snow <laughs>
0: You mean without the, without the snow and none of this? None, none of, of this that,
1: None of that is effective without <laughs> oh, the snow.
0: crap. Okay.
1: I can try to put two and two together. We got a lot of really nice feedback from the, the <laughs> episode, people commenting, questions, things like that. But one of the common denominators that I found interesting is the notion of how much the research architecture of what we do can be applied to the current situation that we're going through in terms of validity of inferences. How do we know what we know? Absolutely. In preparation for this, I went to the WHO website, Mm -hmm. I went to the CDC website, and there are a number of things that they've listed that have yet to be empirically validated in some way or another. So let me run down a couple Mm -hmm. of things, if I may. Yeah, yeah, please. Do 5G cell towers cause coronavirus? Does direct sunlight or hot temperatures or humidity mitigate infection? Does being able to hold your breath for 10 seconds without coughing mean that you do not have the virus? Does drinking alcohol protect you from infections? Does snow protect against? Does taking Mm -hmm. a hot bath protect against? Mm -hmm. Can the virus be transmitted through mosquito bites? Does eating garlic prevent infections? Does spraying yourself with Lysol or inhaling Lysol uh-huh. prevent infections? Does eating Chinese food increase the probability that you will get coronavirus? Hmm. Blow dryer, I noticed yeah. that one. Do you have any other favorites?
0: No, but I got to go back to the garlic one. I think eating garlic could prevent infection just by keeping people away from you. If you eat enough garlic, it leads to social distancing. And I think there's a win there, but I don't know. It hasn't been tested. But that's the point, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe something that we can talk about.
1: Some of these may sound like crazy, Mm -hmm. but we don't know that. Does eating garlic reduce your likelihood of getting infected because people are not around you and your infection risk goes Mm -hmm. down? Well, then it does.
0: That's right. And there are things throughout history, I would say, not even that distant history, where if someone had laid these ideas out on a table, we would just go, what the heck are they talking about? Two of them come to mind, and (laughs) imagine NIH, right? Or some funding board where someone comes in and goes, okay, 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 here's what we're going to do. We are going to take a little bit of this sickness, and we're going to inject it into people to cure this sickness. Huh? (laughs) Huh? (laughs) Okay. You would be deemed a crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. But that's not my favorite. Uh-oh. My favorite is... <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We know you have digestive problems, right? Here's what we're going to do. We are going to take some feces and we're going to implant them in you and it's going to make you better. So I just need a couple million dollars to study this. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> a fecal transplant. A fecal transplant. That's right when you read me this list of things, I might have a personal reaction to them. But I will tell you that my personal reaction isn't that different from the personal reaction that I have to other things that have happened in history. And so I think we really need a way to sort these things out.
1: So we got the garlic. Does garlic reduce your infection Well, garlic itself has nothing to do with the infection, but if garlic reduces your interaction with people and interaction with people is what causes the infection or Mm -hmm. increases the transmission, we have Mm -hmm. a third variable correlate. All of us have taught about these third variable correlations, and we all have some favorite ones.
0: What are yours? One of my favorites is that there's a very high correlation between ice cream sales and homicide rates it is a positive correlation that the more ice cream sold the more people gonna die what on earth could the connection possibly be between those two things in this case the third variable that we're talking about and it's not always a single variable but in this case the third variable has to do with uh, climate or temperature and as the weather warms up, people eat more ice cream, but also uh, more crime happens to occur when weather is warmer. More people are out and interacting. What's on your list of favorites?
1: One that is one of my favorite: The number of fire trucks that are sent to a fire is strongly positively correlated with the damage done at the fire. And so unambiguously, <laughs> the more fire trucks you send, the greater damage is done yeah and that's one of my favorite ones uh
0: let me interject one here there's a relation between the average high school teacher's salary and the percent of students who are going to college that's a really compelling one because it would be very easy for people to argue and they do that if we pay teachers more then they do better Uh, As teachers, or we at least attract the best teachers, and that in turn educates our children better, and more of the students wind up going to college. It's a very compelling argument for paying teachers, and people will make that argument very passionately. Unfortunately, there's a third variable in play here, and that has to do with the economic conditions of the different school districts. That is that the more affluent school districts tend to pay their teachers more, and they also tend to have a higher percentage of students going to college, presumably by virtue of resources that the families already have available. And that relation between high school teacher salaries and this percentage of students going to college pretty much disappears once you take the economic conditions into account. And one of the things I like about that particular example is that people are extraordinarily invested in the relation before you take that other variable into account. And people would really want to use that to argue things. And for me, it's an interesting example in the sense that people bring to the table beliefs and agendas or hopes And sometimes it makes it harder for us to look for those other explanations, but no less important to do so, right? Especially if we start vaping Lysol, it is important to try to unpack those particular uh, mechanisms that are at work.
1: You have an exceptionally good point about having a buy-in, right? You have a belief. You have something, either a predisposed belief or something that you want to believe to be true. And I'm not saying in any way inappropriate. It would be a wonderful thing if we could just simply raise teachers' salaries and yeah. that that would have some positive outcome on learning. But it's not that easy. And vaping Lysol seems like... Right? There's a logical syllogism. Is we have been told mm-hmm. that the virus exists on open surfaces. And we have been told that if it's sprayed with a disinfectant, that within a matter of minutes, it will kill the virus. And we have been told that the virus leads to respiratory infection. Ergo... Mm-hmm. Vaping Lysol will kill the virus in your lungs. So there's a temptation to roll your eyes and say how silly it is, but then you have to remember the fecal transplant, right? I think that's Mm -hmm. a... (laughs) Never forget the fecal transplant. (laughs) And to me, what it distills down to is singularly one of the most important concepts in all of science, and that's just the notion of validity. If you have some basic definition that's not tautological, I don't know if you have this with your kids, mm. but they would ask me, Daddy, what does is, what is love mean? And it's like, well, you know, when you, when you love somebody, when you have a lot of love for them. <laughs> Another one was where my daughter said, Well, what is art? And my honest answer was, Well, it's what an artist makes. <laughs>
0: And validity. It's uh it's, it has to do with being valid. You exactly.
1: Know? The extent to which something is valid reflects validity. Duh. <laughs> So one of my favorite books of all time is Shadish, Cook, and Campbell. The notion of validity is something just being authentic or being genuine. Is it a valid argument? Is it a valid parking ticket? It's some degree of authenticity. But how we're using it here, I think what's important here, is the validity of an inference. Right, so one of the big Points they make in, and just excuse me, I'm going to call it Cooking Campbell, but only because that's the original mothership, realizing that Will Shaddish mm-hmm. had a huge impact on the revision. But thinking about a Cooking Campbell kind of approach, one thing I really like in the argument that they make is a study is not valid, a sample mm-hmm. is not valid. It's the inference that is made. Yes. Is you can have a highly structured randomized clinical trial that makes a completely invalid inference about Mm -hmm. some aspect of the relation between two variables. And so I think that's a tremendously important thing to keep in mind. You don't, by definition, have an invalid study, but what you have is an Mm -hmm. invalid inference that's drawn from a study.
0: Yeah, and all of this ties to the desire to make causal arguments Just think about it as though we're being detectives for a minute. We're trying to understand if we'll just say one variable has some influence on another variable. We can't know that for sure until we can rule out other explanations, competing explanations. And a lot of research really revolves around trying to make sure that you are controlling for or explaining all of these other explanations so that you can make the cleanest inference possible about the relation that these two variables have. You talked about the third variable problem, and those are very simple examples, but when, <laughs> when we start to get some of these much more elaborate scenarios, it can be very difficult to control and even even imagine all of the different variables that can be at play in these systems to be able to facilitate valid inference.
1: We are not going to wander out into the minefield of causal inference, and indeed their entire podcasts dedicated mm-hmm. to the discussion of cause and philosophy of causality. Mm-hmm. But I think you're exactly hit on the point that we need to talk about as to what extent can we say, does inhaling Lysol influence the virus? That may sound like a ridiculous thing. And by the way, I saw the parent company of Lysol announce that you are not to inhale Lysol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to first principles... We can think about John Stuart Mill. And Mm -hmm. Mill laid out a very long time ago three basic conditions to infer cause. The first one is the cause has to precede the effect. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool.
0: Temporality.
1: Temporal precedence. I think all of us who are not Star Trek fans can <laughs> handle that the cause needs to precede the effect. Alright? And Dang so it,
0: you beat me to that joke, too. Did I? I that was I was just ready with that one. I am
1: sorry I pulled the wrinkle in the space-time continuum. Oh if man. If you just go counterclockwise around the earth at a very fast it has fast to be fast, rate, though.
0: It has to be fast.
1: Darby okay. whales. <laughs> Alright, that's my Scottish And yeah, never mind. We've established <laughs> right. early on.
0: Admiral. There
1: be whales here. Well done, Mr. Scott. <laughs> so John Mill says the cause has to precede the effect. Then the cause has to be related to the effect. You have to somehow tie these two together, which is a lot of what all of us do. Is how do you look at covariation? How do you build mediation models, moderation models? Is so the cause has to be related to the effect? But where life gets really fun for me is Mills like mic drop which is there are no plausible alternative explanations. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is where life gets fun. We can all agree that it has to precede. And I think we can all agree that you need to in some way tie the cause to the effect. But then we wander out on the topology of Hell's Half Acre Mm -hmm. of saying there are no plausible alternative explanations.
0: That's right. There's a Sherlock Holmes quote. Right, Arthur Conan Doyle. It's something like: once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Something like that. Let's just stick to what we know. Yes, stick to the facts. Once you rule out the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. What does that mean? And I think that's our responsibility: is to actually work hard, put forth a tremendous amount of effort. To suppose what these alternate explanations are rather than just assume a particular face value kind of connection. And this is our sandbox as researchers, right? This is where the fun is.
1: That's exactly right. But we can think about four different kinds of validity when we're making inferences, and they map. Closely onto the John Stuart Mill kind of approach. So, the first is statistical conclusion validity. And the colloquial walkaway of that is Did you do your stats right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is the modeling right? Is the analysis right? Do you have enough power? Do you have reliability? All of those things. We got internal validity, and that's the extent to which the inference about the causal mechanism is true or mm-hmm. accurate or genuine. Construct validity. Did we define the construct correctly that we're interested in, and then did we obtain some numerical assessment of that in some reliable and valid way? And then external validity, Mm -hmm. which is the extent to which we can generalize all of the above across person, place, or time. So Mm -hmm. those are the Cook and Campbell broad dimensions. I think what's interesting in your gargling mere moments ago (laughs) among these other things, but also what all of us do on a daily basis, I think the most interesting among those is internal validity.
0: Absolutely. As methodologists, you and I certainly focus on the other aspects of validity, but I I find that When I'm interfacing with people who are doing studies out there in the wild, very complex studies, this is really where the rubber hits the road, right? Trying to make sure that whatever conclusions are going to come out the other side support or refute, depending on how it goes, the hypotheses about the causal chain that is operating.
1: And it's also one of the most fun from a creative standpoint. One thing I love about our field is... There is a mechanical aspect to it. There are equations, there are estimators, there's software code. But I think more of our job is in the artistic, creative kind of realm. And that is, if we observe Mm -hmm. a particular relation between parental alcoholism diagnosis and child behavior, and the siren song is drawing us to say, well, clearly... Having an mm-hmm. alcoholic parent causes the child to drink more is taking a step back and saying that's one hypothesis. The fun part is, is as a group, let's make a list of plausible alternative explanations and then see which we can bring empirical data to bear to undermine or even openly refute and then narrow that down to some smaller number.
0: And some of these scenarios are things that we can experimentally manipulate, the design studies that really help us to sort out or control those alternate explanations. And some scenarios are places where we can't exact that kind of control. And that becomes exceedingly tricky because of all the moving parts that are going on in the world, right?
1: In my own work, how I think about this sometimes is similar to a pre-flight checklist So you have a manuscript, you have a conference presentation, you have a talk that you're going to give. And before you launch it, you go through a series of things that you're just checking. Right? Mm -hmm. And ostensibly you're supposed to know what those are. But the whole point of a pre-flight checklist is so that you don't forget and that it's done in some structured order. Is you Mm -hmm. make sure that an engine is attached to a wing. You make sure that the doors are closed and you know Mm -hmm. all of these system checks. And any experienced pilot is gonna say, look, I know that the engine is attached to the wing, but the entire point is to do it in a structured way that you can literally, it's called a checklist Mm -hmm. because you read it, confirm it, and check it off. And so if we think about this as vetting our work, whatever that might be, to a pre-flight checklist, I am going to embrace our long history on this podcast of plagiarism. And Mm -hmm. remember, I'm pretty sure from a legal standpoint that if we say it's plagiarism, then it's not, right? If we denote. That yes. we are plagiarizing, then we can't get in trouble for that.
0: No, I had Jiffy look that up. Okay. Jiffy good. Googled that. We are we're totally good on that.
1: Excellent. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna plagiarize it right out of Cook and Campbell. They have a table that is mm-hmm. threats to internal validity. So let's play a game. All right. Let's play <laughs> pick your favorite threat and mm. we'll build a pre flight checklist. Okay. How about if I start and then you can bounce it? Okay. One that I really like to think about in my own work is ambiguous temporal precedence. Mm -hmm. All right. So Mill says the cause has to precede the effect, right? That's pretty straightforward. But the one that's more tricky to get your head around for me is do you have the right time lag? All right. Mm -hmm. So in my neck of the woods, we look at negative affect in adolescence predicting substance use. And there's been a lot of conflicting findings about this. And one of the sources of that is we ask kids, how depressed are you when they're 15? And how much did they drink when they were 16? Lo and behold, there's very little relation when you look at it. But when you ask kids, are you depressed in the afternoon? And how much did you drink that night? Mm-hmm. then you actually find a much stronger relation. And so what's interesting is a lot of people I will see, you know, whether it be at a job talk or in a in a manuscript, in a flagship journalist to say, we clearly have established temporal precedence. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is an end point. I think what's really interesting is to say, okay, yeah, absolutely you established temporal precedence. Is it the right timeline?
0: Yeah, and you can imagine that, You can have much too short a lag or much too long a lag, right? If you measure people too quickly, which happens a lot with sort of these zip in, zip out kinds of studies, then you're like, ah, we didn't notice any effect. Well, that's because it hasn't hit yet, right? So the uh, the opposite can be true too, that it takes a while for the impact of whatever you've done actually to reach fruition. So I like that a lot.
1: I have worked with folks who are doing these very nicely high-end design RCTs where they evaluate the impact on the last day of treatment Mm -hmm. and then don't find an effect and it's like but the very nature of what you're doing (laughs) it takes time to manifest imagine you were doing a study of is the hot water valve on your shower related to the hot water coming out Mm -hmm. and in the morning you turn the hot water valve on and stick your hand in and the water is cold you say oh there's no it's not causally related (laughs) I mean, it's very, very similar.
0: Yeah, that's a great example.
1: All right, so that's one of my favorites. So I leaned out the window and I looked and sure enough, the engine uh-huh. is attached to the wing so we can mark that off. What is one that is particularly salient to you?
0: Um, I'll throw one out. It's the instrumentation threat Mm -hmm. to validity. And the instrumentation threat to validity has to do with when there are changes in measurement procedures that might occur during a study. So that how you've measured things earlier is not exactly the same as how you've measured them later. One of the reasons I'm bringing that one up is that we're going to be faced with that a lot right now. As we mentioned in our Research in the Time of Corona episode, that people are having to change the way that they measure a number of things. And so the question is, are differences that we observe from the original way that we might have measured things to a subsequent way that we have measured things, are those differences due to changes in whatever it is we're measuring, or is it due to changes in how we are measuring? And that is your Sherlock kind of question to ask yourself when people notice that there are changes over time. And there are examples where people actually have to change the way they measure things over time. In developmental studies, there are things that you do with children to elicit certain responses that make no sense to do with adolescents, and yet you want to understand about how things might be changing over time. So instrumentation, I think, is one that is very, very relevant, especially when you're looking at research that spans time
1: and the pernicious thing about that is it can work either way Mm -hmm. you can use a particular instrumentation where you hold it constant over time and because the measurement has differential relevancies across maturation Mm -hmm. say you can mask an effect Mm -hmm. but you can also build in spurious effects where if you change the measure... So there's a manuscript I use in one of my classes to demonstrate this is they show these developmental bursts in cognitive development. Mm -hmm. There's my developmental development, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the Department of Redundancy (laughs) Department. There are bursts in cognitive development, but if you take a pencil and draw a line on the x-axis that shows where they changed achievement tests... At each change of a test, there was a burst. Mm. The instrumentation is a tricky one because you can suppress effects, but you can also have spurious effects. Mm
0: -hmm. That's a really good point.
1: One of my favorite is history. And that is you're observing something over time and you observe some change or some effect and that a threat to your inference about that causal mechanism is something else happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. I find that fascinating because, again, a lot of it goes back to creativity is thinking about, well, what might have changed, what might not have changed that would have accounted for it. The ones that are more pernicious are changing norms and mores, things like that. The radical changes in the acceptance of drug use, differential Mm -hmm. acceptance, right? I've told on prior episodes, I grew up in Colorado and they have legalized marijuana. And I go down the main street of the little town I grew up in, and there's a little boutique marijuana place that you go in. And there are glass jars that have all the different kinds. I mean, if you're studying lifelong trajectories of drug use, The changing norms of drug use when you're studying these things, that's an alternative explanation. Remember, what we're doing is trying Mm -hmm. to say, can we generate alternative explanations for our causal effect? And one is a systematically increasing acceptance of marijuana use on a societal level is an alternative explanation for some change that you're finding in what you're studying yourself. So history is one of my favorites.
0: That's, that's very relevant in a lot of educational interventions as well, where someone might have a new curriculum going on throughout a school year, but something happens during the school year for example, Khan Academy maybe comes out with a whole new suite of videos that address this particular topic and all the kids flock to that. It makes it very difficult to sort out what what's what. So I like that one very, very much.
1: All right. Give me your next one.
0: Uh, how about... Maturation. Oh, I Um, love that one. The idea that there might be biological or psychological processes that naturally occur during the course of a particular study. All right, let me give you a let me just give you a contrived example of maturation. And, And if anybody has ever run track, you know that we run around the track in a counterclockwise fashion. And imagine someone wanted to do a study to see whether or not people actually run faster in a counterclockwise fashion as we're accustomed to or in a clockwise fashion. So the researcher has a bunch of kids run in the standard counterclockwise fashion and times are taken for all of these kids and then they run in a clockwise fashion and all of the times are taken for these kids and lo and behold, kids run faster in a counterclockwise fashion. So is that because kids are accustomed to running in that particular direction Uh, What might be the reason? Well, how about because you stupidly had them run one right after the other and the kids are completely fatigued in the second run? That's a very obvious one where fatigue is the maturational process that's occurring, even though you don't necessarily think about it as maturation in in the dictionary sense of the word, any biological or physiological change. So when people are comparing treatments or looking at what might happen over time, you have to ask yourself, what other biological, psychological, physiological things are operating simultaneously. And there can be a lot of little nitpicking things that you can find that unravel the inferential logic that people otherwise are piecing together.
1: And I like that it can operate both on a state-like or a trait-like level. Mm -hmm. So a state-like, I was part of a group that was doing a big data collection that spanned an entire day, and they were all very, very good at what they did. And holy cow, it was like banging elbows out in the paint as they're throwing each other, you know, in totally appropriate intellectual ways, Mm -hmm. but trying to get their measures earlier in the day because they're less tired. They're less hungry. They're more engaged. But the kind of work I do, I'm really interested in things that unfold over five and 10 and 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes well, you've got these children who have the audacity to grow and develop and to go from little people into big people. And Mm -hmm. from that, I'm trying to extract some subset of something that's growing itself and trying to come to some understanding of that. So you have children that are developing entirely on their own, especially if you're doing some kind of manipulation. So an interesting thing with maturation is, you can have an extraordinarily effective intervention on substance use where Mm -hmm. kids still use more and more substances every year, right? Their substance use systematically, monotonically goes up every year, but they're not increasing as much as they would have if they had been left to their own devices. And so you're Mm -hmm. slowing a positive growth, yet that is a highly effective intervention in what you're working with. It's kind of a similar thing on your side of the street in schooling is if you have a school that's operating at a very high level, they're extraordinarily successful as a school if they maintain a consistent level of achievement Mm -hmm. year to year to year to year because they're not falling in achievement. You look at a school and say, we need to fire the administration and replace them because they don't have systematic gains every year. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like trying to say, all right, I'm going to try to run the fastest mile I possibly can. And I got to tell you, as an aging runner myself, is just not getting slower Mm -hmm. is a huge achievement. Mm -hmm. Another one for me, oh, there's so many interesting ones. Let's go to one of the granddaddy of them all is selection. Mm. If you're at home and you've got your pre-flight checklist and you're thinking about, and whether it be a research project you're working on or you just listened to NPR and they said something, and now through your pre-flight checklist, you ask yourself, well, where did those subjects come from? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: How did they decide to make themselves available for the study? Right? How are they selected? And in a simple way, we can think about if you have two groups. Is there a self-selection into a treatment and a control group, and then you see a group difference? How do you know it's what the intervention was versus pre-existing differences? But that's an easy one to think about. The trickier one to think about is you do a Twitter poll or Mm -hmm. you do a Mechanical Turk or you do a psych subject pool or a thousand other things. What is the mechanism that led an individual to place themselves in front of you and then you're trying to make some causal inference about one thing related to another? An
0: example that I talk about in my class that has to do with NFL players. I read a headline that said CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is in 96% of dead NFL players. And that is a, just a shocking statistic. It just knocks you right out of your chair. Oh my gosh, 96%. The article essentially was trying to make the case of an incredibly strong link between people participating in football and getting CTE, which would be, which is a horrible link to have, right? And I happen to love football, but I also want people to be safe. But if you actually drill down into that research, that 96% is people who were much older people who played football a long time ago, who complained about headaches so much that they went to a physician and said, something is not right When I die, I actually want you to take my brain out and take a look at it. Um, These are people who played during an era of very different levels of protection. So it's very difficult to ascertain the degree of connection between the impacts that they experienced as a football player, and the subsequent CTE. It does not mean that there's no connection, but our ability to gauge the magnitude of the connection is completely thrown off by the fact that all of these people self-selected into this group by virtue of having a headache. And it's not at all unlike what we're currently facing with the ability to figure out what the fatality rate is associated with COVID-19, right? The early data, are that, oh my gosh, people are, are dying quite a bit, but that's because people with extreme symptoms were the ones being tested. That's not to say that there isn't a link, but our ability to gauge, A, is there a link? And B, what is the magnitude of that link can be compromised by this particular threat to internal validity.
1: That's exactly right, both about our own research, but about thinking about what is the fatality rate? What is the infection rate? Because those denominators are in many ways self-selected. They're testing the sickest people, right? And Mm -hmm. every day we listen to the news, And we learn something new because now they're testing different types of people and testing for antibodies. And these rates seem to be changing drastically, but it's Mm -hmm. because people are examining different kinds of individuals who come into the system. That present themselves to be tested. To me, it's a numerator denominator problem often. Is as you say, is what is the denominator of the NFL players? Well, is that representative of all NFL players or the ones that said, you can take a circular saw to my skull and <laughs> dig out my brain and mess around with it? I'm cool with that. Right? It's exactly the same thing. I was telling a story earlier about going to this private school, you know, open house night mm-hmm. where they were unambiguously making a causal inference that if your child goes to their school, mm-hmm. that their probability of getting into an Ivy League was X percent and every element. Ranging from the melon wrapped prosciutto, which by the way, I was like stuffing into my pockets to take home, is every element was our school will cause your child to go mm-hmm. to Ivy League. But the BMW 735 CSI that's in the parking lot (laughs) that the parents drove to (laughs) belies that Mm -hmm. unique causal inference. Now, not for a moment am I saying that it's not an amazing school and the kids wouldn't benefit, but it becomes that counterfactual. What would these kids have done had they gone to a lowly public school? Mm -hmm. And would they have had the same probability of getting in to Harvard or Yale that they would have if they had gone to the private school? Could be the prosciutto. Could be the Melrose prosciutto. The, it, was, bro. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> Even with pocket lint on it driving home.
0: <laughs> All right, let me throw out one here. How about. Attrition, or mm. historically referred to as experimental mortality, <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the word mortality is so gloom and doom. But but the idea is that you are experiencing a non-random loss of subjects during the course of a study. So imagine that you would like to know whether a particular treatment has an effect, and you want to compare pre to post. But if a number of people drop out of your study come post and you want to make a comparison pre and post, the question is, do you really have, I don't literally mean the same people, although it would be nice to have the same people. um, But what I mean is, do you still have people representative of the same population to which you wish to generalize? Or has some mechanism, some non-random mechanism left you with individuals who are not representative of the population with which you started? And you can imagine studies that are looking at, just as an example, at-risk kids. So if you are measuring some characteristics of at-risk kids, you put some particular service or intervention in place, and then you would like to measure them again after they have had access to that service, whether it's counseling or mentoring, other kind of service. And in the end, you find out, oh, my gosh, on average, kids are so much higher on all of these markers. And the the natural conclusion, the conclusion that your heart is dying to make in the first place, I'll throw that in there, too, is that this has been a phenomenally effective intervention. The problem is that the kids who were at a very, very high level of risk might not be around for the end of your study. Their families might have made alternate plans for them. The kids could have dropped out of school. There are a variety of other things that can operate. So in the end, essentially what you have done is you have cut off the bottom of the distribution. And so now on average, things look a lot higher. Uh, But that's an example where this idea of attrition or um, experimental mortality could lead you to a different inference.
1: The experience I had with that myself is to anyone who knows me, much to their chagrin, is for a period of time I was actually a licensed clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. And yeah. part of my clinical training was in anxiety disorders and treating obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the most effective interventions for this is FOA and COSAC's model of exposure and response prevention. Kind of consistent with your fecal transplant example, <laughs> it is not an intuitive Treatment, But the exposure is as you work with an individual and expose them to the very thing that most causes them anxiety and the response mm-hmm. prevention is you don't allow them to do the compulsion that makes them feel better. There's a great far side cartoon of uh, his Dr. So-and-so's controversial treatment for agoraphobia height snake fear. And a man is locked in a tiny room filled with snakes dangling off the side of the building. But that's exactly it, is you activate these anxieties and then you introduce new material into the cognitive process so that when you come out on the other side of it is you've incorporated new information. The point is, is two things. One, it's one of the highest efficacy interventions in any psychological treatment and presenting problems. But two, it is for those who are able to do the treatment Mm -hmm. because it is very hard. Imagine your greatest phobia and you come to me for help with that. And the first thing I say is I'm going to expose you to that, and I'm going to expose you to that again and again and again and again. That's the treatment. And Mm -hmm. so there's a high degree of attrition in the treatment because it is so difficult to navigate. But if you get to the end, it is highly successful in leading to significant
0: reductions in symptomatology and impairment. Can I give a non-educational example? Mm -hmm. I read a headline that said cats that fall from heights that are higher than seven stories get fewer injuries than those who fall from lower levels. The article went on to propose essentially some sort of kitty physics about how when the cats fall from a greater height, they have more time to sense their environment and to right themselves and to make it as opposed to cats who fall from, from lower heights. There is the Ever so tiny problem, however, that the cats who fall from low heights, the owner finds them and goes, eh, looks like the cat's okay, doesn't take them to the vet to be part of these data. And the cat who falls from 12 stories who's dead, the owner also doesn't take that cat in for the vet to go, yep, she's dead. What happens is that more cats are brought in from high heights who have survived than cats who are brought in from low heights who have survived. This is an example where there's this elaborate construction of, of some causal mechanism that may not be operating at all. This really could just be the fact that you've, <laughs> you've had kittens literally have, uh, have mortality.
1: So the walkaway point is, I have two cats that drive me insane. I need to find a building higher than seven floors. <laughs> All right. Good to know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So drop one, drop one from the high height and one from the low height. And there you go. It's an experiment.
1: Testing. My next one is testing. Greg, are you feeling depressed? Greg, are you feeling depressed? Greg, are you feeling depressed? (sighs) Shut up, Greg. Greg, are you feeling depressed? How depressed are you, Greg? Okay. Testing, it's closely linked to instrumentation. Mm-hmm. but that the very act of testing by the way are you depressed greg greg are you look sad oh, are you i want you to think very carefully stop. greg shut would you quit talking please would think very do, carefully I, about oh you big baby all right I, uh, the very act of testing changes what you're studying one way i like thinking about it is the heisenberg principle right so it's out of physics and to measure something it has to be bombarded by a particle so that Mm -hmm. you know where it is but the very act of it being struck by a particle moves what you're measuring and so Mm -hmm. the heisenberg principle at least my third grade understanding of it is you have an Accurate measurement of where the thing used to be, but Mm. you don't know where it is now. I think there's a a parallel of a Heisenberg Mm -hmm. principle in what we do in social sciences. is the Mm. very act of repeatedly asking you if you're depressed Mm -hmm. sensitizes you and changes the very nature of what you study because I keep asking you and I keep asking you and I keep asking you. So... Greg, are you depressed?
0: You know what, Patrick? I kind of am. I am so depressed that I think you need to handle regression, the last non-interactive threat on the checklist.
1: Wow. I love regression. So it's (laughs) regression artifacts. In my classes, I talk about the regression fairy. Hmm. And it's a bitchy little sprite (laughs) that gives you correlations of 1.2... Uh-huh. <laughs> variances of negative three, uh-huh. <laughs> a positive manifold correlation matrix where all the correlations are positive, but you get a significant negative coefficient in your mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. Regression artifacts are more statistically related to drawing some conclusion that is not a true causal effect, but is some artifact of the model Or the measurement or the analyses that you're doing. So the classic Mm -hmm. is regression to the mean. Mm -hmm. It goes back however many hundred plus years of Galton and very tall fathers tended to have shorter sons and very short fathers tended to have taller sons. But if you pick the most aggressive kids out of the third grade class and bring them all together and give them a treatment and their aggression goes down, well, You pick them because they're elevated on the dependent variable. And so there's some regression to the mean. One of my favorite books is by Campbell and Kenny, Dave Mm -hmm. Kenny, and it's literally called Regression Artifacts. And Mm -hmm. if you want a really lucid, interesting, colloquial, yet technically rigorous navigation through a lot of these artifacts is read that book. I highly recommend that.
0: The whole idea of choosing groups because they're particularly extreme on a measure is something that is very, very common in research, right? You want to do a study to target people who are most in need, subjects who are most in need. The example that I use that is completely nonsense in my class is that I have all of the students in class flip a coin 10 times, and I and it's a big class, so I identify those students who flipped three or fewer tails and i give them a treatment it is a treatment where i i praise them and tell them that they're extraordinarily worthy Um, although they are tails challenged individuals that i think that we can get around that and so i motivate them and i have just those people flip their coins again and lo and behold they have dramatically increased the number of tails that they tend to flip i use that example because everyone there can get their head around what the problem is with that. It's a little bit harder to get your head around what the problem is when you choose people who are extreme on depression or choose people who are extreme on aggressive behavior. But some of the same phenomena can be operating there.
1: I like that. And I see all of that except you praising your students. (laughs) Is that something you practice in front of the mirror?
0: Well, yes, practice, practice.
1: All right. So if you're going to dump regression artifacts on me, which I actually appreciate because I Love the regression fairy. Why don't you exit us with the
0: interactions? Yeah, the interaction is when these interact.
1: Okay, thank you, people.
0: We appreciate your time as usual. (laughs) Classic interactions usually occur with selection. It doesn't have to, but when you have a selection by maturation interaction where you have groups who come in as different with pre-existing differences, for example, whether because one group is a group of volunteers or one group is a group with more experience in something, and then they experience different changes, physiological, psychological, behavioral, biological, over the time period of a given study. So selection by maturation interaction, we could have selection by instrumentation interaction where One of those groups has changes in instrumentation and the other group doesn't. So when two or more of these come together, we wind up having interactions and it makes the chain of causal inference even more challenging.
1: Let's back up and then think about we've got this pre-flight checklist. Mm -hmm. How do we use it? If you haven't already read Shottish Cook, and Campbell, just go read it because it's a remarkable book. Greg, I got a yellow sticky here and... (laughs) How would we just very briefly apply this even as we're listening to the news? So I circled a couple of things. I'm doing this on the fly. I didn't prepare this before, so, so forgive me if this hits a blind alley. But let's say that 5G cell towers were associated with higher levels of COVID diagnosis. There are more people with COVID diagnoses that are near 5G towers than not. All right, so this is going to be a pop quiz. All right, mm. That's a real correlation. Give me an alternative hypothesis.
0: What would explain that? Yeah, we'll have to think about other things that could be causing people to get the infection and try to figure out if those might be associated with 5G towers. So let's say... Let's say 5G towers are put in places where there's higher population density so that it can serve more people. And maybe it's actually the higher population density, the fact that people aren't able to socially distance as much, that would be causing those infections. That's that's one explanation.
1: Good. Okay. We're going to rip through these. Would this it motivate you to go burn them? <laughs> <laughs> right? A hundred 5G towers in London uh-huh. were set on fire. Which, first, I'm impressed. Could I go just a little off topic? How do you set a cell tower on fire?
0: You, I think you rub it in herbal oils. Oh.
1: Okay, so I am going to give you another one. This is totally unfair, and I'm just going to throw these at you. It is. I had no idea, but okay. And you know my deep commitment to not caring about what is fair and not fair. All right, uh-huh. let's say that I present you with real empirical data that mm-hmm. drinking alcohol is associated with having a lower level of incidence of the virus infection.
0: Okay. Again, what I have to do is I have to think about what are other possible variables that could be associated with virus infection and how might those be associated also with drinking. Imagine it's the case that people who are socially isolated are people who are prone to drinking, but also as a result of that social isolation, they're distancing automatically as a result of that. So in that case, we have a potential common cause, this isolation that people feel or Who knows? Could be other mechanisms that cause them to drink. But as a result, they're also um, segregating themselves from the rest of the population and experiencing lower infections.
1: Final one. All right. Mm -hmm. As I did a study and I found out that people who live in environments with deeper snow have less infection and therefore snow protects you against the infection. It must kill the infection.
0: Respond. Sure. I could probably go a couple of different directions with that. One is if the snow is very, very deep, it's harder for people to get outside and navigate in that snow, harder for them to interact, harder for them to communicate the virus. That is one potential alternate explanation. The other might be if you go across different countries, countries where there is tends to be deeper snow might have different cultural norms around interacting, different behaviors around family interaction, all kinds of different things that have nothing to do with the snow, just the geographic locations and the cultural background of places that tend to have that deeper snow.
1: Outstanding. Thank you. And kind of a wrapper on all of this is I think one of the greatest threats to the entire scientific endeavor is I know a guy who
0: Mm -hmm.
1: fill in the blank. (laughs) Right. And I think a lot of what we're navigating now falls under that umbrella. I know a guy who was diagnosed with COVID and took this malaria treatment and the Mm -hmm. COVID went away. Well, a friend of my mom's lives in Tucson, Mm -hmm. and they have no cases in her apartment complex, and it's because it's so hot there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's another siren song to generalize from an anecdotal experience and violate one of these pre-flight checklist points that leads us (laughs) down blind alleys.
0: I agree completely. And I feel like there is this powerful cocktail of things that come together. There's, there might be strong prior beliefs. It might be a general confirmatory bias that humans have. It might be a lack of understanding of validity issues. It might be an unwillingness to dig more deeply, to be more skeptical, but it's this cocktail, this recipe for I'll just be strong in my language, a recipe for ignorance Um, at the very least, naivete, but, but ignorance, and sometimes even belligerent ignorance, and you get an uninformed scientific community, and you get an uninformed public as a result, where people say things like, well, it's obvious, or clearly, and I think that is incredibly dangerous. I want people to be questioning things. I want them to, every single thing that comes across social media, everything that they see in the news, I really want them to explore alternate explanations about that. In fact, I think it's our duty to explore alternate explanations, not just take things at face value. You know this about me, that I'm a huge fan of the Harry Potter series. Huge fan. Crazy, crazy huge. Like, I think... The book that I have read the least, I might have read six or seven times, Um, so I've been through the series a lot. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. Uh, (laughs) Too late. (laughs) Too late, yep. But one of the characters is Mad-Eye Moody, and his common utterance is constant vigilance. Constant vigilance! Where he, you know, he's maybe a bit paranoid about things, If if you know the story, you would understand why, but... But that's the way I feel about the things that we're faced with, is that we really should be constantly vigilant.
1: Alistair Moody, ex orer ministry malcontent, and your new defense against the dark arts teacher.
0: Any questions? One thing that I've noticed in the curriculum for children, and you probably noticed that as, this as your girls have gone through school, is that statistics itself has really trickled down to the lower grades. When I used to go to preschool to pick up my kids, I would see that the kids had made bar charts. What are our favorite pies or whatever the heck it is, but the idea that kids are becoming more comfortable with data, more comfortable with the consumption of quantitative information. And I absolutely love that, but Without the ability to be skeptical of data, if you just have this willingness to take any numbers that are given to you at face value, especially when the interpretation, the face value interpretation conforms with some pre-existing belief, I think that's just plain dangerous. So I would love to see this checklist and or things like this checklist really start to trickle down into the science curriculum of how can we question things. Certainly, we talk about hypotheses and testing them in a very clinical bench science kind of way, but I think we need to be thinking about those kinds of things in social sciences because, frankly, far more people are going to go out into the real world and be exposed to the kinds of things that we've talked about here, these kinds of statements than we'll ever practice bench science. So I think this really is what people need to become an informed public.
1: The most important word for me, just in a personal way, and one that I would encourage that we approach anything like this, is just the simple word of maybe. Right? Mm-hmm. We're being skeptical because not everybody is a crazy nut job. Not everybody is like, <laughs> how stupid could you possibly be, right? And you do. You see 5G cell network causing viruses. It's like... Man, they're coming out of the woodwork now. Mm -hmm. But if you think historically over things that we took for granted, the things that were believed to be safe, pregnant women smoking and drinking because it relaxed them, (laughs) does 5G technology cause the virus? I think the first reaction to that should be, it might, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: maybe it does, But let's run through the checklist and see. So I'm going to rip through these temporal precedence how do we know what is the timing of this selection all right how do we, how did the people get in that we're making this basis on the history did mm-hmm. something happen before or after they put up the cell tower maturation what time arc happened where things are changing on their own regression artifacts did you only pick particular cell towers that were in particular kinds of neighborhoods because they were elevated mm-hmm. attrition are there differences in people that came in or out of the study test did you ask again and again, how are you doing this? Did the testing change that? Instrumentation, how did you measure that? And then as Mm -hmm. you noted, things really get interesting, the interaction of all of those above. And Mm -hmm. so if you hear a story, it's not like, oh, the whack jobs are at it again, a 5G tower, how dumb could you be? Actually... Think about it from a skeptical, critical way and go back to good old John Stuart Mill and say, are there plausible alternative explanations? And we need to seriously consider those. And yes. then being the hypothetical deductive cycle of science that we have is if there remain three plausible alternative explanations, how can we bring empirical data to bear to adjudicate which of those is most likely?
0: I like that very much. And I think it is our duty to be willing to entertain those alternatives and our duty to try to sort through them. So at the end, we have the correct story on which to proceed. And so that we can all then have fecal transplants.
1: Okay, we'll go out on that. You ended an episode before about a gorilla throwing poop, and we might as well end another one on a fecal transplant. As always, we so appreciate your time. We really truly do. And we hope that you're safe and healthy. And we will talk to you next week.
0: Thanks very much, everybody. Take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and please leave a review. Also, you can find us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. You have been listening to Quantitude, the intellectual equivalent to a COVID-testing healthcare professional cramming a 6-inch Q-tip up your 2-inch nostril. Today's episode is brought to you by the Digital Storm Bolt 3 personal computer, with Intel Core i7 processor, GeForce 1080 GPU, and HydroLux integrated water cooling system, the muscle car equivalent to overcompensating statisticians everywhere, by post-tenure review, dedicated to maintaining the illusion that you actually have to do anything at all following tenure, and by five category ordinal scales. Sure, that's continuous. Whatever helps you sleep at night, this is most definitely not NPR.